Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 564 of the podcast and it is Monday the 26th of July 2021 as I record this later than usual (laughs) as I am on the mend and still in quarantine with COVID. (laughs) More on that in the personal section coming up. In today's show, I'm talking to Ros Morris about writing, publishing and marketing literary fiction. Now, I loved Ros's latest book, Ever Rest, which has taken her years to write. And we discuss the definition of literary fiction. How do you know when an idea is good enough to be a novel? Why emotion is so important? Ros's writing and editing process, as well as choices around publication and marketing. Whatever genre you write, I know you'll find it interesting. And one of her thoughts stays with me in particular. I don't necessarily expect to make a lot of money from publishing literary fiction, but what I expect to be able to do is create my honest art. And I love that. So let's all create our honest art, whatever genre we write in. So that's coming up in the interview segment. So my personal update, I'm alive. (laughs) which is very exciting. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I recorded the intro to last week's show on like a week ago Friday, and I mentioned a pandemic slump. And I was actually feeling pretty down and pretty low. Turned out I had COVID, (laughs) or I still have the end of of COVID, but I'm on the mend now, although I'm still pretty tired, which you can probably hear in my voice. Now I am taking it easy. I wasn't going to podcast today, but I woke up and was like, do you know what? I am almost better. So here we go. But I have been in bed for seven days straight, essentially. And uh, it's very good to be standing up and getting on with things. So I'm just, you know, I love my work and I've also started getting bored. And when you start to get bored, you know that your brain is coming back, which is great. But in terms of timing, it was was pretty bad timing catching what is definitely the Delta variant, which is going around like wildfire here. But um, I was recording that morning, that Friday morning, and after I recorded, we went to get our second vaccination, uh, which was fine. (laughs) And I know this wasn't a reaction to that. I didn't have any reactions to that. But um, the symptoms really kind of kicked in on Sunday, and it takes two weeks for the protection of the vaccine to kick in. So I was basically single vaxxed when I caught it. But also remember, and I think this is really important with Delta, the vaccination doesn't necessarily stop you getting the virus but there is a very high probability it will stop you ending up in hospital or dead (laughs) so I'm neither so hooray for the vaccine and uh, I've been thanking my lucky stars that I had some protection because (laughs) this it was not a fun week to be fair Um, so I started I I thought I'd give you some details because I know 
why not I share everything else on the show <laughs> so I started getting head cold symptoms so the runny nose and only a tiny cough like well I didn't have a bad cough at all really but I had a runny nose and like what I would have called a head cold and um, I actually got ordered a, co- a PCR test which is the kind of big official test because our health minister also got COVID and there was some stuff around you should order a PCR test if you have you know these other symptoms of delta which include the the head head cold thing and then it developed into the fever and body aches and basically in bed wishing you were dead type of feeling which people say it is similar to flu feeling i mean let's face it the the body only has a certain number of things it can do when you're sick and one of them is fever and body aches and you know the the aches when even your teeth ache in your face (laughs) so anyway lots of paracetamol uh but and then basically after the 48 hours it's just been slowly getting better and very very tired a lot of sleeping not feeling fantastic to be honest but the loss of smell and taste is very weird super weird but that's already starting to come back they say that sometimes that takes a few weeks after you're better but I'm yeah I'm already getting it I was delighted yesterday to start smelling things again and tasting things uh so yeah I don't know where I caught it people have asked me that haven't got a clue. I mean, Delta, it really is everywhere at the moment and it's and it's highly contagious. So I've, you know, I've been to a few restaurants. We went away for a weekend, but again, that's Jonathan and I alone in a B&B and then a um, going walking and stuff. So it's, yeah, I'm hardly a party animal. <laughs> there has been no naked raving creatives and uh, I haven't been to clubs or football matches or any of these things so you kind of feel like it's a bit unfair I also you know I'm reasonably fit and well and I wear a mask where appropriate I don't wear a mask outside because that's not necessary but I wear a mask inside and I sanitize and all I've been I am such a good girl like I'm a good girl I follow all the rules and but still the virus is tiny 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 microscopic thing and in the end what can you do (laughs) well actually what you can do is get vaccinated (laughs) so it doesn't put you in hospital or kill you (laughs) and believe me I feel so lucky that at least I am single vaxxed because this time last year uh, I mentioned this on the show and I I did a books and travel episode about it because it was a really difficult time my very fit cousin who's in his 50s you know completely the fittest guy runs ultras and all of that, uh, was just coming out of a coma after like three months in a COVID coma. And uh, so I have had what they call a mild case. (laughs) No breathing issues and no hospitalisation. But yeah, you don't know how your body will react to this. And even if you think you'll be one of the people who gets no symptoms, and look, to be honest, I thought I was one of those people. I'd be like, oh, but you know, even if I get the virus, I, I'll probably be one of those people who just doesn't feel anything. And in fact, Jonathan uh, had some stomach issues, but which again is one of the symptoms of Delta, but he was pretty much fine. <laughs> so he was he did, was not laid out like me at all. Uh, and he, in fact, he even tested negative, but there's no way he hasn't processed the virus because I've been sick for ages so yeah 
on the positive side, I feel like I will have the immunity power pack, is what I'm calling it, once this is over. I will be uh, in another week, I guess, I'll have the double vax protection and natural antibodies. So I'll be on fire. Full strength, I will be on fire. (laughs) But yeah, I wanted to tell you about it because um, vaccination really is the way you're going to protect yourself from hospitalisation and death. And I don't say that as anyone with any uh, degrees in health, but um, I've you know, my mum took us to Africa when we were children and uh, vaccination has always been an important part of our public health. So there you go. There's my public health method message. So yeah, this week I have basically been reading a lot and listening to audiobooks and things, um, travel memoirs and novels and really, I guess, thinking about what matters. Because when you're sick, you literally don't care about anything other than trying to get better and what's essential which you know very little is essential when you're sick uh so yeah I mean there's so much I want to do more books to write different books to write than the ones I've written and I know I'm moving into a different phase and perhaps we all are once this is finally over who knows when that will be so again it was funny because I was thinking I was reading some books about um being in monasteries and silence and quiet and that's what really what I needed but also I can't help myself I, I've read some books on um the on virtual reality this week as well as lots of other things I was able to read and thinking about how much I love the technology side and the fast moving stream of information but also how I'm, how much I need that disconnection and deep thinking and I don't have to give up either I think that's one of the things I thought about in my sickbed is that I just need to manage my time and walking really helps me and since we're still quarantined in the house, you're not allowed to go out for 10 days after the beginning of symptoms. Um, So I've got two more days and then I can actually go for a little walk and um, yeah, much more on this to come. Okay, if you want to hear about my, uh, some of my story past, I was on the Story of a Storyteller podcast with Connor Breddon, who has a lovely Irish accent. And uh, you can listen to that, that Story of a Storyteller. I had had, it was my gin and tonic time of day. <laughs> and it was before I was sick, obviously. So I was pretty honest about things I don't often talk about. Connor was um, really enabled me to open up and share so yeah and also I can't help but talk to people with lovely Irish accents so that was nice also if you love poetry check out the new podcast A Mouthful of Air by creative coach and poet Mark McGuinness who's been on this show a number of times and also podcasts at the 21st Century Creative Mark's new show features one poem per episode and considers the meaning of it and Mark joins the growing number of us who can't contain ourselves with one show anymore podcasting is like writing across genres multi-passionate people just can't help themselves (laughs) and of course poetry is meant to be spoken aloud a lot of the time so that's a mouthful of air if you want to check that out on your favorite podcast app so thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week a lot of you enjoyed the interview with sarah on gentle marketing Gwyn GB says, really enjoyed the message in this. Great for anyone feeling burnt out by marketing and sums up the Creative Pen's totally approachable view. Thanks, Joanna. 
Thanks, Gwyn. And yeah, I definitely think that um, I do gentle book marketing. And in fact, someone emailed and said, this was interesting, but um, in fact, I have it here. Uh, Michael Yoda on um, YouTube said, this really spoke to me. Listen to 10 gurus and get 11 opinions. Aggressive marketing is not me. And I just start feeling overwhelmed and frustrated about what to do. Would love to hear a podcast on marketing for introverts. Okay. And my comment on this, I put this on YouTube, but is that pretty much everything I talk about in marketing is marketing for introverts because I'm an introvert. (laughs) I think I'm pretty high on the introvert scale actually. And, um, maybe getting more so in my old age. Uh, But yes, everything I do is, I mean, right now I'm alone in my audio booth, perfect for an introvert. And I know this goes out to lots of people, but I don't feel that. I feel like it's relationship on my terms and I can deal with emails and tweets and things when I feel like I have the energy. So yeah, a lot, everything I talk about really is marketing for introverts. Uh, Just a couple more comments. Um, Charlotte Curativity on Twitter said, this was such a great interview. I totally agree that it's important to start with oneself, especially for creatives. It can be so damaging for us to focus on a potential audience before having even explored our own voice. It happened to me and I've seen so many cases. I totally agree. Um, I agree that we need to explore our own voice. But what I would say is I, it took me about five books to find my fiction voice. (laughs) And that's why I've changed direction so many times with things. And maybe we're always finding our own voice. So, yeah, that's good. Jamina FP says, I feel so much better because I hate those aggressive models of marketing. I've been doing it differently, but I am in need of a system and better ideas. Furthermore, I am buying this book right away. Thank you so much. And there you go. More evidence that podcasts sell books. So today's show is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, which I now use for all my books, fiction and non-fiction. And in fact, I am quite desperate to get into Pro Writing Aid because it marks a point in my process where I actually have a manuscript. And um, I am now behind on The Relaxed Author, which I'm co-writing with Mark Leslie Lefebvre, and which is with me at the moment. And it will be going through Pro Writing Aid as soon as I've done my first hand edit. So um, Pro Writing Aid is a huge part of my editing process process. So what is it then? Well, ProWritingAid is writing and editing software that goes way beyond just grammar and typo checking. It is a tool to help us fix and improve our manuscripts. I use it several times after I finish my first self-edit before sending to my editor because I want my human editor to focus on the big stuff, not fixing line issues. It really super helps with passive voice, which is uh, something we all do, and uh, helps with rewording, helps with just all kinds of stuff. And uh, after I've done revisions, I use ProWritingAid again before sending it to a human proofreader. So it's like another set of excellent eyes on the process. And uh, it will pick up things that you always get wrong. For me, commas is my nemesis. (laughs) I really struggle with commas. And for people who say, oh, well, you should just learn the rules. Well, we use tools for a reason. And this is one of those tools that I think is super useful. You will never see all the issues in your own work. So why wouldn't you use a tool that will help you learn and improve your writing craft? 
So ProWriting Aid has lots of reports as well, like and will help you with sentence length variation, which is definitely something uh, that people can, you know, when the beats are all exactly the same. Um, complexity, adverbs, repeated words, and uh, all kinds of and typos for the specific type of English you use, which is super useful. Now, my mum, who writes as Penny Appleton, is in her mid seventies. She's pretty tech phobic, but she loves ProWriting Aid. So wherever you are on your writing journey or (laughs) your uh, happiness with um, tech, then it's very useful. And then my mum uses a lot of dictation and also loves exclamation marks. So running things through ProWriting Aid really helps make her books uh, into something better before she sends it to her editor. There also is the Word Explorer, which goes way beyond a thesaurus and uh, to help you discover new words for your manuscript. Also, the reason I uh, I switched switched to ProWriting Aid after using Grammarly for years is that ProWriting Aid works with Scrivener. So I no longer have to copy and paste, which uh, I absolutely love. So you can check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition by using my link prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A, prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons and uh, especially the limited series, I say limited, there's quite a lot of them now, of uh, AI shows and um, I'm, I'm going to do a special show on VR um, and Web3 and all of that type of stuff coming up too. So thanks to all my patrons and uh, new patrons this week, Bonnie Lacey, Cyclist, Daphne Garrison and Andrea. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show on Patreon for years and uh, for months and years. You're amazing. But of course, you don't have to support for uh, ongoing forever. Um, You can uh, do a limited time and pop in and pop out. And of course, you get the extra Q&A show, which is around 45 minutes of me answering questions that patrons send in. And I'll be recording that in the next few days as uh, before the end of the month uh, for patrons. So you can support the show at patreon.com forward slash the creative pen p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the creative pen and uh, I know some people <laughs> want to just buy me a coffee so now you can at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the creative pen right let's get into the interview Ros Morris is a best-selling author as a ghostwriter and an award-nominated author with her own literary novels. She writes writing craft books for authors under the Nail Your Novel brand and is also an editor, speaker and writing coach. Today, we're talking about writing literary fiction and Ros's latest novel, Ever Rest. Welcome back to the show, Ros. Hi, Jo. It's great to be back again. I, I love these shows. <laughs> Oh yes, we we've literally been doing these on and off for over a decade now. You're one of the <laughs> the regulars on the on the show, so I'm excited to talk about this. So as I said, you've been on the show a lot, so people can go back and listen to your history. So we're just going to dive into the topic. So I wanted to start with a definition: What is literary fiction as compared to genre fiction, and why is it such an emotional question? Well, usually literary fiction is bigger than just the story and the characters. There's usually a a sense of universality. It's um, the writing is often uh, more nuanced than uh, maybe sometimes poetic uh, than than genre fiction, if you're comparing it with genre fiction. And 
if we are comparing it with genre fiction, it might not conform to genre tropes. So if you've got a murder in your book, for instance, in certain kinds of genres, it's very clear what must happen about that murder. In a cosy mystery, it's got to go a certain way. It's all got to be solved and the world's got to be put right in something much darker that it, it might end with with a much darker, more uncertain note. But usually it would be very clear for each genre what has to happen about that murder. In literary fiction, almost anything goes. The, the murder might not be solved at all. And solving the murder won't necessarily be the point. It will be something else. So literary fiction doesn't really conform to many genre tropes. However, and this, this is where it gets quite fuzzy, Genre novels might have certain literary qualities. I think of it as a continuum. Each each writer might be very genre or very literary or somewhere along the, the whole rainbow that goes through the middle. And something, I, I suppose you could say it's literary tends to be bigger, deeper, perhaps more mining for, for individual truths, more enigmatic than just being about the plot and the characters. It's an, an emotional question, as you say, and I think that's because there are all sorts of issues that people might have with um, literary fiction or non-literary fiction. There's a sense of superiority sometimes of one over the other, that literature is worthwhile and other kinds of books are entertainment you can hear the air quotes in my voice there <laughs> and in, indeed you have to think about what entertainment is and these these ideas change drastically over the years anyway in certain academic circles Charles Dickens was not taught as literature because he was an entertainer so tastes change all the time it really depends what you like another example is that again if you talk to literary people about plot they they think that's an, an absolutely filthy word <laughs> they, and in fact some very literary writing courses I was talking to somebody I'm, I'm helping with her novel and she said she's never taught about structure and pace and she's been on numerous writing courses um, there are sort of very different values I think between certain factions of the writing world but Really, as far as I'm concerned, I write the the kind of story that I hope has got great depth as well as entertainment value. And I like the idea of the continuum. I think that's really good. And is that idea of you you don't have to be 100% one or the other. Like For example, I read a lot of horror and horror suits liter literature, literary writing very well, I think, because they're sta often standalone books. And this would be another thing. A, a lot of literary works are standalone. Is, would that be right? Yes, that's true. Actually, I'd never thought of that. But but yes. Yeah. And the other thing you did say bigger books and you don't mean bigger in terms of word count, because obviously epic fantasy is going to probably be the biggest in terms of word count. And actually, often literary books are, are a lot shorter, I guess. Yes. Yes, that's a good point, too. It's not about word count. It's it's bigger in terms of the, the scope of the writer's imagination and the, the scope of the experience they're trying to take you through. It's not the mileage and the number of pages. Now, you were very successful with ghost written thrillers and you're an official ghost, so we don't know the name. But now you're writing your own literary fiction. And obviously, you know how to write these sort of best selling thrillers. So why did you decide to not write thrillers under your own name and to write literary fiction? 
it's left to my own devices. I, I wrote what was really me. I could quite easily hit all the notes for a thriller and do the job that was needed. But if if I took a, an idea and was writing it as myself, I just explored what was most interesting to me. And it was always those resonances as well. Don't get me wrong, I, I love plot. I love interesting characters. I love the whole the whole pulse of a story that pulls you along and makes you feel you have to know what happens next and you have to stay up and read another chapter. I absolutely love that. But when I'm writing as me, I just want to to get the most meaning as well out of an idea. And that's why I ended up writing literary, literary because it just is the way I think and feel. It's what I'm curious about. Mm, it's true to yourself, I guess. That's right, because we all write what interests us and what we're curious about. And that's the wonderful thing about writers, no matter what we're writing. It's it's a very genuine art. We're all writing from a deep place of curiosity and interest. So I wanted to ask you about now, and I just for everyone listening, I read Everest, and it's not Everest the, um, the mountain, although the mountain's in it, it's two words, Everest. And uh it's a really fantastic book. I've really enjoyed it. What's interesting is trying to figure out with literary fiction whether an idea is good enough. And like you say, if it's if it's not so much uh, genre tropes or plot driven or whatever. So how do you personally identify when an idea is good enough for a novel? And how did the story Forever Rest reveal itself? Well, I know an idea is good enough when it just keeps drawing me back. I want to involve myself in it. I want to inhabit it. I want to think about the people who might be involved in it and what they might do. And that in itself just suggests all those those deeper resonances that, that I will be interested because I'll be thinking there's something universal here. There's a big truth I want to explore and I want to get at. So that's how I work out if something has the scope to be, I suppose, my kind of novel. It's just because it appeals to my kind of heart, really. Um, and the story of Everest came about because, um, well, shall I briefly explain what it is? Yes, yes. Um, in 1994, a man falls into a glacier when he's climbing Mount Everest and his body can't be retrieved. About 20 years on, he's still in the glacier and the people who are close to him are still waiting, really, for him to come out because they can't move on. And the reason they can't move on, or what makes it even more difficult than it would naturally be, is that he was one half of a rock band. And it was a world cataclysm and he disappeared. And his music keeps him alive for the whole world all the time. And this really appealed to me, that the, the music and the guy being frozen and gradually coming back. And I thought how it's there's, there's so much in it. It was really powerful to me. I, I kept thinking how... We all have songs that tell us who we were when we were 19 and we can be that again and it freezes us. And these characters were very young. When this this guy disappeared, they were all involved in a remarkable experience knowing him. He kind of was formative for them and they're still caught by him. And it all needs to come to some kind of resolution before they can his drum roll ever rest 
Uh, and it, it is uh, to but coming back to the idea was it that you I don't know read an article about bodies frozen on Everest so that would be one angle or did you think because uh, well, uh, music's very important to you and we'll come back to music but did you like I want to write a book about how music moves people like where was the seed that took you into the story the seed was the mountain it was the idea of these people being held there I first had the idea about a man in a glacier. And in fact, there are a few short stories about about people being falling into glaciers and just being held there. And I, I just thought, who's waiting for them? And what's it like for them? And pretty soon I was reading about, about people getting lost on Everest. And I thought, oh, my goodness, ever rest. Mm. And then it started to, to sort of come out. And then the music idea came a little bit later, but it just struck me one day that that music freezes a moment in time, and it oft, it often freezes a very emotional moment for you. And so the two came together, and I I love it when an idea does that when it, it suddenly gets um, a, a sister that fits with it perfectly. Well, let, let's just talk about music then for a minute. And you're right. I mean, I and I think this is true of a lot of people. I still listen to songs that I listened to when I was 15, 16, you know, like you said, 18, 19, where you're at a pretty emotional point in your life and things mean a lot. And I can listen to a song and I'll have that feeling of of leaving home or or whatever. And that music, but now like I don't listen to music when I write. And now you have this undercover soundtrack on your blog, which shares the music behind people's books. But what about you? Like how does music play a part in your writing process? And and how did you use it for Everest? It's very, very important to my writing process because the ideas I get are often very emotional. And what I'm always trying to do really is pin down an emotion and make the reader feel it. And that's where the the nuance of of the words I use is very important. The way I I describe something, the way I have a character, look at another character, all that. And the inspiration usually comes from music. And the music helps me understand what emotion I am aiming to create in the reader. So what I can do, what I often do is play pieces of music and something will suddenly strike me as that's the moment when that happens or that's how this character feels about this or this is how this, I want this, this whole scene to feel. And so I just collect these pieces of music that are moments of the book for me and they're an emotional soundtrack and and they let me hold something still because feelings are so slippery and they're, they're so hard to keep hold of but music does that for me well that's really interesting then so when you're looking for music or listening for music do you go on Spotify and go uh, playlist to make me feel nostalgic or whatever so do you go looking specifically for music that will make you feel emotional or is it because you listen to so much music you'll hear something and go yeah that's that feeling I usually start from something that I've already got or I already know, or I've got albums that I know bits of, but not other bits of. And I'll just put them on randomly with headphones while I make notes or while I go for a run. And and then those will may lead me to other things. I tend to use YouTube quite a bit and uh, just find because 
find videos as well as watching a video of um, Talk Talk singing one of their songs. And that just gave me a moment for the way the guy in Everest would sing something, just watching his face and the emotion that was coming across. So I often like to watch at the same time. And and I just just go exploring. And yeah, they're often quite random things. Um, Once when I was ghostwriting, I had to write a chase scene and it wasn't going particularly well. And I used music then quite a lot to give me an atmosphere of a place or to actually just keep my bottom in the chair. (laughs) (laughs) If it's not going well, you've got to have something that keeps you there. So I think, okay, two albums and then I can have a break. And I was listening to Fat Boy Slim. I was writing this chase scene and it was great because all those cheeky rhythms just gave me the, the punch that I needed. So things can be quite, quite random and they can quite randomly be the right thing that you need to listen to. So that's really interesting. And so that's part of your exploring you mentioned and the sort of researching emotional side. What are the other things you do in the beginnings of the writing process in terms of research and sort of preparation before you write? A a lot of factual research and Everest had several quite chunky um, subjects that I needed to get to grips with. There was music recording which I didn't know that much about but I I was in a band at college and and I'm quite musical anyway and and actually I did the music for the trailer with a friend (laughs) um, so I knew some bits about music but I didn't know other bits about the industry and I went and asked lots of questions to a friend of mine who's a music lawyer I read lots of books and they gave me things that could happen and that, that I would never thought of if I hadn't done that research Another thing I had to research a lot was mountaineering and the whole um, landscape of Everest, how you climb it, what it, what the life of climbers is like. I spent a long time soaking up all those facts and the geography and, and they gave me some quite poignant things that could happen, some startling facts as well. And the landscape of Everest is, is amazing. It's beautiful. It's very hostile because you get above a certain altitude and you can't really survive, you actually start to die. (laughs) And then, of course, I discovered that this can be very sensationalised and the mountaineering community are quite sensitive about this. So you've you've got to treat the subject very sensitively, especially when you're talking about people being lost. Those are people, they're not just bodies who are um, sensation fodder. They They are people and they belong to people. So, again, I found an emotional layer of um, reality that I, I had to get into. So I do lots of reading, lots of research, lots of web surfing, watching um, watching videos, video casts, all sorts of things. And from that, I, I develop um, a strong familiarity with, with the worlds of the characters and the kinds of things that can happen, the kinds of things they might do. And I get a lot of plot ideas from that research as well. It's it's a very productive process. And how are you capturing your ideas and your and your thoughts? Uh, do you have do you write handwritten notes or do you type it up or are you just putting things into a sort of plotting spreadsheet as some people do? Bits and pieces. I end up with a lot of handwritten notes and they, they're um, on scraps of paper torn off things and they become a landscape where I know I know what shape piece of paper I'm looking for on my desk. I love paper. I love having the, the um, actual physical evidence of 
the thoughts that I'm having. I love having them around me. Then I I order them into plot events and, and I write cards that have got the, the events. If there's a detail that I need to keep, like how something feels, what a place is like, then I have a series of files where I, I write that down. I might write um, notes about where to find a really good clip of video that shows what something's like so that I can then write it later. Um, or I might I might decide I don't actually need that detail. So I'm quite careful about being economical with my effort. I'll think if I need this, then that's where to find the detail. Uh, but I might not. So there's no point in actually writing it until I'm sure. And th- and then how do you go from there to actually writing the first draft? Are, y- are you a plotter or a discovery writer? And how do you get that first draft done? Um, I'm a bit of both. I definitely believe in outlines. So I make an outline. First of all, I write all the possible events on cards, spread them around, look at them, muse quite a lot. And then I get them into an order that seems to make sense and write a first draft from that. And inevitably, uh, some changes happen because once I start to really inhabit the book, things don't go according to plan. So I'm always rejigging the plan to make sure I still know where I'm going. I need to know where I'm going. I don't mind changing it, but if it's if, if my change has changed the direction, I then do rethink to make sure I don't get lost. And my aim at this point is to get a first draft that I can then delve into and change around. But I I really I don't feel um, secure until I have a beginning, a middle and an end. I want all the ends joined with a, a sequence that roughly makes sense. And then I can really get to work and, and edit it and pull it apart and enhance things. Well, it's funny there, you said really get to work after you finish the first draft. <laughs> yes, so what, I, I, did 23, I did 23 drafts of this book. Well, it's okay, so be clear on what is a draft to you? Because I feel like some people think that means you rewrote the whole thing 23 times. Well, I probably rewrote it at least 18 times. <laughs> the, whole, time, the whole thing, end to end? Pretty much, or doing extensive changes. Because what I start with is something quite rough, and it, it still doesn't really understand what it wants to be. That's the thing. It's like it's it's newborn, but it needs to learn a lot. and once I've got that that first draft, I feel more comfortable really thinking about the themes and whether I've um, made the most of them, whether I've made the, the most out of each plot event. I'll, I'll look for repetitions that I do want and repetitions I don't want. And this, this involves a lot of, it's as if actually thinking of the book as a music mixing desk. You've got faders, you've got loads of faders, loads of channels and loads of faders. And I'll be turning some up, turning some down, muting some, duplicating some. Um, and that's, that involves a lot of rewriting. Every scene really was a lot of scar tissue. Uh, that, that's how, how deeply I go into the rewriting. But I do regard it as very creative because it's there that I, it's in that work that I, I get the nuance that I want and the, the very fine control over what exactly the reader is feeling. So how long then are we talking about? Just give us a sort of idea of how long the, the research and the first draft and then that editing process. You'll be horrified because I first thought of this book about 20 years ago. <laughs> 
Well, thinking is fine because we all have ideas. But when did you start, I guess, really like this is the book I'm now going to do? Um, 2014. Okay, it was, it was a long ago. time, <laughs> a long time ago. Yes. And uh, it wasn't the only thing I was working on, obviously. During that time, I released a couple of other books, at least. Um, and you've been and... on the show to talk about your me- travel memoir since then. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes, that was an amused bouche. That was a, a temporary break while I, I needed to let Everest just um, simmer down for a moment and so I was doing plenty of other work but it's the kind of book that needed to mature quite a bit other other novels of mine haven't taken so long so life form three I, it was just a couple of years while doing other work again uh, but Everest was very complex I had a lot of I had a lot of characters to put together it's it's got about six viewpoints and they all had to work together in their own ways and they all had to have their own voices as well. So that there was quite a lot to, to finesse about it, which is why it took a long time. You mentioned there while doing other work and obviously you're an editor, you have nonfiction, you're a coach, you, you do all kinds of other things. I Do you think that literary fiction writers or people who want to write a novel of that scope and that amount of time that you're going to dedicate to it, like you should really make sure you have other income so that there's no financial pressure on basically your art? That, that's a really good point. And yes, it really mattered to me to get this book the way to a state that would really satisfy me. And I wanted to be able to take the time. I didn't want to have the pressure to get it out by a certain time. And uh, I wanted to be able to take as long as I needed. So yes, it was essential to have other work that would give me the breathing space. And also the, these these kind of novels I find do very well if they can have a period where you, you don't do very much to them for a while you come back and you see them afresh and you see possibilities and you also see things that you can get rid of that you didn't do very well so the the long process is is quite helpful for getting it right ultimately yeah having a bit of distance from it enables you to see more and and of course as we said you are an editor and you edit other people's (laughs) words other people's books how does your editing process for other people differ to your own process do you, you know is it that space that gives you all the the distance you need i think i edit other people's work exactly as i would edit my own i look for possibilities i'm coaching somebody at the moment and and i'm i'm helping her create an outline for her novel and i'm i'm looking at the kinds of things that i would look for in in my own books and um I, I also find that it's very illuminating and stimulating to work on somebody else's book. I see possibilities and I can discuss them with them. And I can also see when they've done something, I thought that's really interesting that that's shown how a particular mechanism works. Because a lot of storytelling is actually hidden mechanisms that and effects the reader doesn't know um, are there. Um, misdirection for instance writers are a bit like conjurers I think it's um, there's a bit of Darren Brown I think in quite a lot of writers we we smuggle things past we hide things in plain sight and it's so interesting to get a manuscript from someone and have a look at what they're doing and help them do it better and also understand more about your own art from that as well 
And I think one of the things I learned from you is the reverse outline. Is that one of your things? Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Ex- explain that because that really helps me because I'm a discovery writer and yet I get to about 30,000 words and then I kind of have to do one of these reverse outline ideas. Assuming it's my reverse outline you're talking about. I'm pretty sure Other people do it as well. Uh, you sort of figure out what your end is going to be and how you're going to get there and just actually plot the scenes backwards. So if they're going to end here, what's got to happen just before then? Well, they've got to get to that point. So how will they get to that point? Well, there has to be a scene where then this happens. And you kind of build the book, walking backwards through it to the point where you've actually left off. I, I find that's that's quite a good way of breaking through the points where you can't see. What I often find about block is there's it, it's not that you don't know in on a big scale of what to do, but you don't know the little steps to get there. Well, there's an objection you haven't yet figured out for yourself. Like, why does somebody do such a thing? Often that's a really useful thing to sort out. If you find you can't write something, it's because there's a character who's probably saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm really not going to do that unless you give me a better reason. Things that I think is difficult about literary fiction is, you know, there are some books that win these literary prizes and they are almost unreadable with some kind of, as you say, maybe very overly poetic writing that makes it very hard to read them. And yet that might be award winning. It's just so broad. Like you say, with genre fiction, you know what you're looking for and whether the book delivers on the promise of the genre. How does a writer know that they are writing a good, in inverted commas, literary novel when there really seems to be no clear guidelines, I guess? I think there aren't any clear guidelines and it all comes down to your own tastes. I try to write the kind of literary novel I would enjoy. And there are, there are plenty that I don't actually, I, I get lost in them where I think, oh, for heaven's sake, this needs a good slap on the back and a plot. And, <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I think that's why I liked Everest so much because it's real plotty as well as character and lovely writing, etc. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I love plot. I find it difficult because I could noodle around forever with an interesting person and what they're thinking and doing. But when I'm reading, I'm quite impatient. And that's what probably enabled me to to write thrillers, because I I could just sort of get on with them and just get the action going. Um, With literary, you, you don't necessarily need that sort of action. But I often explain to writers that action isn't necessarily exciting things happening in a physical sense it's it's things like choices and dilemmas and difficult situations absolutely anything that keeps our curiosity could be action I do find that some writers are surprised by this they they haven't had this they, they haven't thought about action in that way before and as for literary books that aren't like that really everyone has different tastes we do this for enjoyment we read for enjoyment not necessarily to get points or to show off it's it's something that we do to fill our souls and everyone's different so if there are no rules really for literary fiction uh given that you're an editor and you see a lot of manuscripts what are some of the red flags or what are the things that authors get wrong so coming at it from the different angle how do we know when it's you know get making mistakes That's a good question. And I always make sure before I work with anybody that our 
styles are aligned, that we want the same thing. There's no point in me editing a novel that's um, literary and very experimental unless I happen to also understand and appreciate that kind of experimentalism. I, I will steer them wrong. So again, this, this probably go, comes back to illustrating the point that there are no rules. But what I do is I try to work with people who've got a similar sensibility to me. So they, they want something that's got a story, but it's also got the required depth as well. And then what I find are the, the biggest problems are how to use the material to keep the reader's attention and to, to keep their attention on the right things, keep them, make them notice the right things. A lot of people will put in far too much backstory, for instance, or not use it in the right way. So I'm usually telling them this backstory doesn't belong here. It might work later or you might not need it at all. Plot, as I've already said, plot and pacing are, are big problems because people often don't seem to think in terms of keeping the reader's curiosity all the time. And once you understand how to do that, you can use your material to, to keep the reader glued to your book, but still have all the, the depth and the artistry that you want. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? And like you say about taste, this is so important. And it's something that we always need to keep coming back to. And I think what's difficult with literary novels, also because they're so standalone, is that it's hard to know whether, as a reader, you might like a literary novel. And actually, let's come to covers, because one of the kind of ways that, well, one of the obvious ways that readers pick up books is by the cover and the title. But with genre fiction, again, there are things we do that make it very clear. But with literary fiction covers and titles, how do you show the reader, I guess, with those things, what they're going to get? Oh, that was, yes, the there were long agonies over what the cover of Everest should be like, just what to put on it to start with. I had to make sure it didn't look like a genre novel because that would just signal the wrong experience to the reader. As you say, we have to say to the reader, this is this kind of book. Typography helps a lot. If you if you use quite a delicate typeface, that's, that tells the reader that it's not a genre novel. Whereas if it was a, a book with a mountain on it and quite big blocky type, that would say a thriller. So if as indies, we have to make the decisions about what clothes our book is going to wear. And the the font and the way it's treated is is a really important way to signal that. And we're not going to tell people what the cover looks like. They need to go and look for themselves, but it's it's very cool. I think you did it. You did a good job with that one. But let's talk about publishing uh, because you've obviously you've been working with traditional publishing for a long time as a, a ghostwriter. You also work uh, as an editor. You indie publish your uh, many of your books, your nonfiction and some of your fiction. So what were you thinking around the publication of Everest and why did you go the way you have and maybe explain that choice? Well, I with all my novels, I've tried first of all, to pitch them to agents to see if there would be a market for them. Because I, I always think I'll see what help I I could be offered with, with the book. Because a, a publisher who has the right audience could could be a big boost for it. They, they could give it a real a really good start in life. So 
with with my previous two novels, I actually did have literary agents for both of them, but but um, they couldn't sell the books, and so I published them myself, and I was quite happy with that because I, I loved the process, and so I do love the process of making the editorial decisions and and just deciding how to present it, and it feels like it's just a an, another piece of creativity I've been able to add to to the book. Um, so with Everest, I queried agents, and I, I got some very enthusiastic replies. And and then they they read it, but they never got back to me. And it was September 2020. I gave them three months, and I thought, well, nobody knows what the market's going to be like. So really, I've exhausted that. I've done as much as I can to find out what's possible for that book as a traditionally published book. So I thought, well, I'll quite happily publish it myself. So that's fantastic. And so one of the difficult things, well, okay, I hear two opposing things from uh, literary writers. One, there is no point in going indie because it's so hard to market literary books and you'll never sell anything. And on the other hand, people say, oh, it's so much better to go indie because traditional publishing never markets literary books and neither do literary fiction authors. So it's actually much easier to make money as an indie uh, literary fiction author because you can do Amazon ads and no one else is doing them in the genre. So what are your thoughts on marketing and selling? Selling literary fiction. Well, I think everything you've said is true. (laughs) But the good thing about about going indie is you can you keep the book alive for as long as you want. And if you go with the press, then there comes a point where they they're not as interested in in putting effort into it. And it's not surprising because they have to keep producing new stuff. But you with your much smaller of books and if they're literally like mine and they've taken a really long time like mine have but you know they 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 are very important works to you and you you can keep nurturing them I don't necessarily in I expect to make a lot of money from publishing literary fiction but what I expect to be able to do is to create my honest art and that's why I really take my time with them. I don't want to be pressured to meet certain deadlines, get them out by a certain time. I want them to be right. And then I will slowly discover the right way to reach an audience. But I think it's very important to, to find ways of reaching out to audiences. And the way I, I like to do that is through my blog and my newsletter. And in fact, you told me years ago to start a newsletter. And for years, I thought, well, what will I put in a newsletter? But I started over the last few years to really enjoy writing the newsletters because they are like a way of really um, reaching out to and connecting with people and people write back to me. And and, and that's lovely. Yeah, I think yeah, I'm a subscriber to your newsletter and I always enjoy reading it. And you get pictures of you with your horse and various other things you're up to. And I actually don't find it a chore. This is this is something I hear from a lot of people that writing newsletters is a chore and I used to think that when I thought I had to find um, news like, oh, I'm doing a signing or I'm releasing another book and, and so on. But there are certain writers whose production is just not like that. But we are creative people. We're creative 100% of the time, even when we're asleep. So <laughs> we can write about that. And once I realised that I could do that, then I started to think I would just share things about, about being a creative person as, as I would with anyone I was talking to who was interested in in talking to creative people. So I now really enjoy doing it. 
Mm, no, that's great. And uh, last last question. Obviously, as you said, this has taken many years. It's a big project. You've put so much in and it's very important to you. How do you then go from the finishing energy of one book that's been such work to even considering another book so like what's that because I often feel and I don't take as long as you but I (laughs) I write more genre books is after whenever I finish a novel I'm like oh I'm never writing another novel like I really do feel like I've emptied myself and there's nothing left and then I have to go fill myself up again in order to write another book Uh, but there are ways of shortcutting that process obviously but how does it feel after such a big book and and how will you get yourself back in the state to write something else? Well, you're right. I, I, I feel emptied. I also really miss the characters. Sometimes I just go and listen to some of the undercover soundtrack I made for the book so that I can be with them again because they don't need me anymore. But I still kind of need them. And you have to give it time. As you said, refill the well. I think you have to get to a stage where you're starting to look at new things and sort of extract yourself from that book and and start getting interested in in other things in in other kinds of characters um you've got to get curious actively curious about something new and it seems impossible at the time it's probably like a breakup with a partner you think oh no i just want to really have the same and and all the good bits and not have to uproot and start something completely afresh but you do have to just read new things watch new things try new things and and eventually the the curiosity awakens again in something new you've got to extract yourself from the way you were thinking for the book you've you've finished and be able to kind of start living in a new one Mm, absolutely right so we are out of time but why don't you tell people uh also a bit about some of your books for writers and what they can find at your website and where that is and everything i've got a series called nail your novel there are four books one is a process book one is a workbook one's about plot and one's about characters if you're if you are struggling with plot my plot book will explain all the things you need to do to write plot without compromising your literary credentials and I have a blog called nailyournovel.com and you can also find me I have a website called rosmorris.org and that's r-o-z-m-o-r-r-i-s fantastic well thanks so much for your time Ros. that was great Thanks, Joanna. So I hope you found the interview with Roz interesting and that it gave you some insights into her creative process and ideas for your own. And of course, let's all remember that comment around uh, creating my honest art. And I love that. I think it's something that's so important. And especially in this sort of pressure to write something that's commercial or something that might have an audience you know creating our honest art is super important and yeah we can figure out the rest of the stuff along the way so next week i'm talking to creative coach peleg top about rediscovering your creative spirit if you're feeling like it's a little jaded and i know you you will be inspired by our conversation i certainly was so happy writing and i'll see you next time thanks for listening today I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. 
You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.